not only does communism overtly uh, just treat life as disposable, but also it creates the conditions where even those who had been faithful to a certain point were finding themselves doing things they thought they would have never done before. So it's this both overt and covert uh, attack on life. A lot of people today will tell you that communism is alive and well, except that people wonder, where is it? People say, well, it's in China. Yeah, but then people say, but America seems communist. Except, what does that really mean? A lot of people who are here in America from former communist countries are telling us, don't you see it's becoming communist? And most of us are left scratching our heads going, really? We're not China, and what is that anyway? Are we not, we're not doing like a, some kind of shared economic system? What are we doing? What's it all about? Well, we're going to find out today. We've got an author with us who wrote a book on communism. It's called When the Sickle Falls, and it's stories of Catholics who survived communist oppression. Now, it's being released this November by Sophia Press. So we're going to go check that out for sure. But stay tuned to this episode of the Jonathan Weston Show with Kristen Van Uden. Listen, dear friends, long gone are the days where you and I could just simply trust what the nightly news broadcasted or consider what we read in the local newspaper as the truth. The mainstream media deceives the world, telling them bold-faced lies and often using fear to scare and control the masses. Now, how many of you are already seeing your friends and family back to grabbing their masks or scheduling another vaccine due the, to the uptake the media is covering about COVID or something else? Well, we've had enough. We can't let the mainstream media shape our culture and influence our family and friends. We must make sure that the truth is available to all to remind and warn the world of the lies that are continuing to be spread. So today at LifeSite, we kick off our fall campaign, and I need your help to strengthen LifeSite's voice for truth, to keep LifeSite News fully operational in the United States, Canada, and around the world. We must raise 500000 by October the 1st. So please pause this video now, pray right now about making a contribution, and then do as you are called to do by the Lord. Thank you for your attention. And now, back to the program. Kristen, welcome to the program. Hi, John Henry. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Kristen, you've done kind of a deep dive here into communism. Tell us, first off, what is communism? Because there's a lot of confusion. A lot of people are wondering, what is this? This was you know, a system, an economic system. It sounds pretty good. It sounds like, you know, we'd all be sharing instead of having this super wealthy class. It would just be, you know, people having sort of equality. What is communism? Communism is a political and economic system that really is a full ideology when you look into it. It has the principles of a religion, which I discuss in the book. It has these totalizing principles of uh, positing that it helps to build the entire person. So Stalin famously said that he was the engineer of souls and they were trying to form the new Soviet man. And they're forming man in the image of a fallen world, essentially. Communism always claims to be an almost salvific ideology. 
it forwards a worldly utopia, which of course, as Catholics, we know is impossible. And that is really where the crux of its main error lies in that we are in a fallen world. Of course, we have been redeemed through Christ's blood, but we will never achieve perfection here on this earth. We store up our treasure in heaven for the next life. Communism inverts that entire cosmology. It denies the existence of God and says, instead, you can have perfection and utopia here on earth. Ironically, it never achieves this because we've seen that the death count of communism in the tens and hundreds of millions over the past century alone is evidence enough that this is not the worldly utopia that they claim to achieve. And <clears throat> it's because they have these foundational principles wrong. Um, communism, people make the mistake, as you alluded to, that it's primarily just economic. And as I hope to illustrate through this book, it really has this almost demonic undertone to it. Religion was heavily targeted by communist regimes the world over. So astonishingly, the playbook against the Catholic Church is pretty uniform, despite geographic and temporal disparities between these countries and these individuals that I spoke to. And it's this playbook that really reveals the true nature of communism. It's interesting because you know how with the LGBT movement, for instance, um, there was always this talk about how uh, members uh, would be, you know, harming themselves and they were doing all these bad things and getting these psychological problems, but they always blamed it on those who would say, no, the behavior is against nature and you're harming yourself and it's causing the problem. But the homosexual activists rather would say, no, 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 it's not. It's only you. The whole reason why we're experiencing guilt and shame and killing ourselves is all because you're condemning us. We have to stomp out that condemnation. Therefore, we'll be finding good. We know that didn't work because if you go to Switzerland and other countries where homosexuality is celebrated and has been for decades, they've still got the same suicide rate. But the question is, is there some similarity there with communist countries? Ah, the reason why this is not working is because we have those darn Catholics or, or people who believe in God, some, you know, God in the sky that are stopping us from achieving our utopia. Yes, that's a great parallel that you make. And of course, that's the argument that the communists use. Catholics were often accused of being wreckers, which is a term that basically accuses them of sabotaging the communist project economically. Also, a very major charge often leveled against Catholics was counter-revolutionary. And this is because not only we believe things that are antithetical to the communist project, but also because of the existence of the Vatican as a sovereign state, they would try to claim that Catholics were foreign agents. So they always find a way to make it the fault of the supposed fifth column that their own ideology is failing at its own purported ends. But what you said at the beginning really resonated, and it reminds me of another Sophia title, Guilt, by Carol Hauslander, which was originally published in the 50s. And her thesis in that book is that suppressed guilt, when it is not taken care of through the proper channel of confession, redemption, absolution, and, and true penance will fester in the soul and produce all sorts of pathologies, both psychosomatic to purely psychological. And actually, she argues that totalitarianism and the willingness of an individual to collaborate with a totalitarian regime, such as the Nazis or the communists, is a manifestation of this repressed guilt. And it's very interesting because, as you mentioned, with the transgender movement, for example, the, these people are feeling a certain guilt. Their conscience is speaking up, but it's being stifled. And it's because we've basically absolved 
or we, we have abolished absolution. So what they really want is absolution. What they get instead is false affirmation and it completely thwarts that natural instinct that they have towards the good. Absolutely. So you found in your research a kind of a universal uh, element in communism, a persecution of the church. Mm -hmm. And so tell us some of this. Um, Like you've got a bunch of stories in your book here of of folks who've experienced this. What's one of them that touched you the most and, and, and sort of really settled this for you? Oh, there's so many. And I think to start with, I will talk about a gentleman named Arturo from Cuba, who I interviewed. He spent 17 years in prison as a political prisoner. He was known as one of the plantados, which means planted or firm. And this referred to the prisoners who were so firm in their beliefs that they would not budge. They would not submit to re-education. And the temptation was always there in prison there would constantly be the opportunity to go to a re-education class, to apostatize from the faith, uh, to renounce, even just in a small way. So the challenge faced by martyrs from the centuries, from the right from the beginning, the pinch of incense to the gods in Rome, or stepping on the icon for the martyrs in Japan, they always present it to Christians in this way where it's minimized and the apostasy is is made to seem like not a big deal. One story sticks out um, from his testimony and that I heard from a few others of what would happen in the prisons in Cuba, which also happened during the Spanish Civil War perpetrated by the communists there. And the guards would take Catholic prisoners and tell them, just renounce God, just apostatize briefly, and we'll let you free, and then you'll be able to go home to your family, and it's not a big deal, you just say the word once, and you're done, and then you can go to confession, right? And the sin of presumption um, on their part. And so some of the prisoners, unfortunately, who were just beaten down by starvation, malnutrition, torture, would take this deal, and they would say, okay, I, I don't mean this in my heart, but I will go to confession after, God knows. And then they would renounce the faith, and the guards would just laugh at them sickly and say, just kidding, you're going to hell now, and shoot them anyway. And for a purportedly atheistic regime that does not believe in the eternal soul, for them to gloat about sending a soul to hell is really revelatory as to what communism believes. And of course, we entrust those souls to God and God's mercy because they were in this impossible situation. Um, Arturo was able to survive these 17 years. He was actually serving a 30-year sentence, which, which was the longest sentence one could serve short of death and execution. And he recalls witnessing martyrdoms in the prison. Um, There were many men who went to their deaths shouting Viva Cristo Rey. In Mm. a separate prison, um, one that he was not at at this time, there were these heroes of this counter-revolutionary movement known as the MRR, which um, these men were extremely um, devoted to their Catholic faith and wrote letters home encouraging their deaths, that their deaths would encourage their family to attend mass and to stay close to the sacraments. And Mm -hmm. they all said Viva Cristo Rey right before their deaths, right? Just like the Cristeros in in Mexico. And so in addition to these martyrdoms, Arturo recounts the secret masses in the prison. So there were several priests imprisoned on the various circulars and when possible, they would say mass. If it was not possible, then Either they didn't have the proper matter in form for the sacrament or there were no priests on that block. The prisoners would actually all get together 
and pray the, the prayers of the mass short of actually performing the consecration, obviously, to keep their Sunday obligation and to just highlight the importance of the sacraments, even in these impossible situations. So one thing that really shines through in all of these testimonies is the great lengths that these Catholics went to to get to the sacraments. And maybe a little later, we can talk about the underground church in Czechoslovakia and how that puts things into perspective for us who take the sacraments for granted. Hey, my friends, now is the time to stand up and fight. We are just about to have the Synod on Synodality and Everything that you've seen indicates that it's going to be an absolute disaster. We have Father James Martin as a personal appointee of the Pope speaking at it. We've got Cardinal Supic, Cardinal Tobin. These picks of the Pope to engage in this synod are indicative of where we're going. We're going into heresy. And at these times of great crisis, the church, especially those called in the laity to work for the glory of Christ and his church, are called to gather and strategize. Back in 2014, LifeSite launched something called Rome Life Forum. It was a gathering at that point of some 75 life and family leaders from all around the world to strategize as to what we could do. And when we gathered, the majority of people were most concerned about what? About Pope Francis, about what was going on in Rome. But this was 2014, but the life and family leaders saw it first. Now, a decade on, we are confronted with some of the most severe challenges the church has ever faced. And so our tradition at LifeSite is to continue with Rome Life Forum, which has continued every year until we had to take a break over COVID because we weren't permitted. But we're starting it up again. Please come if you feel so called to Rome, October 31st and November 1st, the very end of the Synod on Synodality. And uh, we'll be there to strategize with His Eminence, with His Excellency, and with many life and family leaders from around the world. For LifeSite News, this is John Henry Weston. And may God bless you. How did you come to write this book? Like, why <laughs> communism? It's, it doesn't seem like something that, you know, um, where did this come from? I, it's really, honestly, a gift from God. I can't explain it, short of it's just been an obsession my whole life. I started this project when I was in college conducting interviews. I majored in history and Russian studies, so I studied communism more broadly. But I was really interested in these unknown stories because you often hear of survivors of the Holocaust, for example, or survivors of, of other disasters, but these Catholic survivors of communism and survivors of communism more generally seems to be quite neglected. There's the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation in Washington, D.C., which is doing some great work on this front. But in countries where communism actually was implemented, these stories are often stifled even by the government. So Putin last year shut down the Memorial Society, which in Russia was collecting stories of Gulag survivors and testimonies from eyewitnesses. And there um, is this broad swath of memorialization efforts where often it's as if we want to forget these things rather than memorialize them and take lessons from them. I've always been very interested in martyrdom. My Many of my favorite saints are martyrs. St. Catherine of Alexandria is one of my, my new favorite patron saints. And when you think of how martyrdom is possible in our modern day, it was mostly under these regimes. So under 
I just read a book about uh, Christ and Dachau. So under the Nazi and Soviet and broader communist regimes, there were actual physical martyrs, red martyrs who died for the faith in these extremely heroic ways. But also there were many white martyrs. And the stories in this book really highlight the spectrum of martyrdom that is available to us. And I think this white martyrdom is something that is more relevant to our lives in the West that we will probably not be shot for the faith, although who knows with the way the country is going, but we will have to face this temptation towards a gradual piecemeal apostasy. And many of the stories that I highlight showed how to thread that needle and how to avoid giving in in the small things so that if the request to perform the ultimate sacrifice ever does come, we will have been prepared. One of the things about communism deals very specifically with Catholicism, Catholic oppression. And you just mentioned Putin. I think that's very interesting because a, a lot of people, the the Ukraine war and stuff has been very, very complex because it's a very confusing situation. On the one hand, you have Putin saying pro-life, pro-family values, and Zelensky being like insane on the other side, the, the, as woke as woke gets. And so the whole situation is confusing. But I know, because I was in Moscow years ago now, but I noticed there's no Catholic churches. You, you, I had to travel 45 minutes in a cab every day to get to one. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. There is a very anti-Catholic stance there. And what you just mentioned there is very interesting. Putin shut down the memorial society that was collecting the stories of those oppressed. He's made shows about you know condemning uh, communism's excesses. What's going on for real? That's a great question. I think this is definitely a false dichotomy that's been set up between Russia and Ukraine. And it's it's something we may never get to the bottom of until after it's over. But to your point about the lack of Catholic churches, it's interesting because obviously in Russia, the Russian Orthodox Church was the primary target of the communists. But that provides an example for us of what could have gone wrong, where luckily and through the grace of God, in Czechoslovakia, at least, the underground church maintained strict fidelity to the Vatican and uh, a strict implementation of Catholic principles and didn't really allow the infiltration that the secret, um, the secret police was attempting to subvert doctrine. However, that did occur to a much larger degree in the Russian Orthodox Church. So Patriarch Kirill, who I believe is still uh, the, the main patriarch at Putin's side there, is actually a former KGB, and that's pretty common knowledge and this this extreme uh seeding of the church hierarchy with party loyal men uh was much more dramatic in russia and in the soviet union than it was in the west although they did try and of course we know even in the united states from the testimony of Belladad that they they have done that the world over but um one of the inspiring parts of this story was learning about this divide in the church in Czechoslovakia. So I can explain this if, if we have a few minutes. That um, basically in 1949, Pius XII issued what are known as the secret mandates. So he basically gave carte blanche to all bishops under the Iron Curtain to consecrate bishops and to ordain priests without specific um, you know, permission from Rome. So they could go around that usual ordinary jurisdiction because of the emergency situation. So in Czechoslovakia, this was a great grace because the communists had basically shut down communication to the Vatican and were murdering the bishops and priests. So in order to continue apostolic succession, this was necessary. 
a gentleman I interviewed from Slovakia who is actually a politician who's run for president there several times, František Mikloško, worked closely with the underground bishop Jan Chrysostom Koretz, who later became a cardinal under JP2. And their side of the underground church maintained, as I mentioned before, this strict fidelity to Catholic principles to the Vatican. They never tried to set up their own pope or to act outside of their state in life and what would be permissible to them through jurisdiction. So they were also instrumental in actually the candle demonstration and following years Velvet Revolution, this public peaceful and prayerful protest that helped to bring down communism. But on the other side of this, you had sort of these rogue elements who were taking liberties with these secret mandates. So another character I examine is um, this man named Felix Maria Davidek, who actually started ordaining women with these permissions, which obviously violates Catholic principles. And um, all of those ordinations obviously were declared null and void by John Paul II after they came to light. So this highlighted for me the great temptation that there is to, during these times of extraordinary jurisdiction, kind of cut corners with the faith and, you know, with this assumption that in an emergency situation, you can do this sort of thing or that anything goes, is something that I hadn't really considered before and that Catholics, either in the West and traditional communities or anywhere else where we believe we're facing persecution, have to keep that in mind, that if you're fighting for the Catholic faith, it's whole and inviolate. It's the whole thing. And you can't sacrifice aspects of it in order just to survive. Looking around yourself in the United States now, with many of those who have survived communist times telling us, hey, guys, wake up. This is what I experienced in my own country. We're becoming communist. Do you see that? And what in the society that you're seeing right now and in the church are you seeing that indicates that? A good question. Of course, in the West, it's a much softer and more vague implementation of these principles. They know that we've caught on. Um, there's a great scholar, Diana West, who's written a book, American Betrayal, that discusses actually the presence of communists in the FDR administration, even that early on, and how they've been subverting culturally the the human mindset and the our psyche to be primed to accept more totalitarian measures which obviously we saw happen with the covid totalitarianism is one recent example and then as you mentioned before what you cannot say you can you always have to look at what you're not allowed to say and how today the transgender epidemic really fills that spot um i think it's going to be a very different way of resistance, they I, I was able to identify sort of these main points of action that communist regimes typically took against the church. And we don't really see any of these just yet, except for the propaganda and infiltration. So when alarm bells really start going off, these are what you know to look for. Uh, number one is to outlaw the public worship of the church, which I guess we did see during COVID to a certain extent. And mm -hmm. in the very least, make mass attendance discouraged. A woman named Olga, who I interviewed from the Czech city of Brno, discusses that in the early years of communism, she would be instructed by her parents to go to mass with her eyes cast down so that she wouldn't be able to identify either the priest or any of the other parishioners. Because mm -hmm. if you were hauled before the secret police, you could then with a clear conscience say, I didn't know who the celebrant was. I don't know who else was there. And mm -hmm. this this uh, use of this weaponization of 
neighbor versus neighbor, which of course was a hallmark of communism, I think is something to look for that we might have seen at least during COVID with people turning each other in and um, this, this soft pressure to not attend mass. Uh, the rounding up of the clergy and religious, I suppose that could be happening to a degree now with the persecution of what we see with Bishop Strickland, for example, and, and faithful Catholic prelates who are speaking the truth and not bending on matters of doctrine. Um, the seizure and repurpose of church property. I'm not sure there's a parallel to this just yet, but that's another one of these red flags and warning signs that happen under totalitarianism. And this is why, as an aside, it's interesting that Oftentimes, there is a blurry line between political and religious persecution when it comes to Catholics under communism, because as we've seen, a lot of these charges, such as wrecking or counter-revolutionary activities, are really political charges, but they're leveled at people who acted the way they did because of religious convictions. So the seizure of the church properties and the Catholic schools in Eastern Europe, for example, was one of these watershed moments where the clergy and faithful laity had to stand up against this, even though it was technically just a political measure. So that might be where we see the greatest parallels in this. We know as Catholics, we can't vote certain ways because of the culture of death and the, the pro-life policies that certain candidates might or might not hold. And that is something that is political, but really it would be a sin even to, to act a certain way in the political realm because of religious convictions. And so that's probably the closest parallel we have. You, you called your book, When the Sickle Swings. What, what is that? Why, why that title? Yes. So that comes from scripture, the swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And I really loved this imagery of all throughout scripture of the swinging of the sickle and the harvest as this moment of testing the faithful and separating the wheat from the chaff and the final moment where we must remain faithful um, until the test is over. And it's very interesting that the hammer and sickle are these perennial symbols of communism because we know what they symbolized for them, of course, is, is work, the both industry of the hammer and agriculture uniting those two proletarian groups. But when you think a little deeper about it and think of the more, some of the more spiritual imagery that you can take from these, the, the hammer, to me, I thought of the hammer of justice and how communism clearly subverts all justice and that the justice of God is ultimately the justice that these individuals I interviewed and all those who stayed faithful throughout these persecutions were keeping in mind that this false authority here on earth had usurped power and was using it against truth and goodness and to just keep in mind the eternal judge and that he ultimately is the only one you have to impress. And then the sickle, of course, <laughs> I'm sure others have thought of this, but the Grim Reaper wielding the sickle and the great death toll of communism is just this ironic, poetic uh, sort of comparison to make, but also that these moments, as we know, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And so when communists cut down Catholics, either through actual martyrdom or persecution in, in small ways, um, forbidding them to go to church, making it harder for them to get into schools and employment opportunities, and as, as Olga put it, death by a thousand cuts, when this sickle is swung, this is actually the means of our salvation because we know we have to carry a cross. And so these um, 
many people that I interviewed would reference that they sometimes even became grateful for these trials because their faith was purified in this much more intense way. And they emerged from these trials with a much stronger faith. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com, where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. We have um, talked a little bit about what you see in terms of what's around us already that seems to be going in that direction. What are we to do in times of persecution? What did you learn from uh, those whom you interviewed about best steps for us uh, as we see these things approaching and, and happening around us? So there are many tactics that can be applied to organization of resistance, which I found interesting to compare the various countries and resistance that was possible because oftentimes it just wasn't. Uh, the implementation of communism was either gradual or so totalizing that there were really no, no recourse to take. Um, in Cuba, this is interesting because there, there were a much more militant set of uh, resistance freedom fighters, and that was available, of course, because American intelligence was involved to a certain degree. But everywhere else, it was really this internal battle, first and foremost. So the main takeaway that I took from all of this advice was that your first priority is to save your own soul and to save the souls of, of those around you to preach the faith as much as possible. Because we can often get caught up, as we saw with the Davidek case, in fighting this political battle and in defeating communism as a whole, um, winning these, these more temporal victories. But if you lose your soul in the process, then all of that was for naught anyway. And so as we've seen with the, the example from the prison guard and when that when you think of that as a microcosm of communism and how these tactics were used to get Catholics to apostatize just in daily life, that is the major battle. And you need to be guarding internally your mind and your soul against this onslaught of propaganda. The uh, one story kind of illustrates this from Cuba, and this is an example of propaganda that was leveraged at school children. So of course we know from the American context, um, propaganda is always brought before people as young as possible in order to form the next generation. What teachers would do is they would line up all the elementary school kids, tell them to place their hands out and close their eyes, and then said, ask God for a piece of candy. And of course, nothing would materialize, nothing would happen, the minutes would tick by. Then they would say, okay, now ask Fidel for a piece of candy, referring of course to Fidel Castro. And then the teachers would go around and place a piece of candy in all of the kids' hands which of course is this brainwashing from an early age that the communist government is the one you can trust that will provide for you and God is nothing more than a myth. And that sort of thing can really get to you when it starts early enough. A woman I interviewed from Romania remembers that her family would either turn off the TV or turn the volume really low when Nicolae Ceausescu, the communist dictator there, 
would have his four hour daily rants on TV and they would pray the rosary instead during this time. And so when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, no, this was not toppling the Berlin Wall, but it was protecting and preserving the seed of faith in these children who were met at every turn with this onslaught of propaganda. And ultimately, that is what God asks of us first and foremost. So tell us a little bit about propaganda and that whole war, because that's obviously a huge element of what goes on here, the control of the media. Um, but also that what you just said about Romania was also very true of China still is. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, in China, with their special app that gives them social credit scores, if they watch, I think it's for an hour a day, uh, Xi Jinping on whatever else. <laughs> Um, they get, you know, bonus points and stuff like this. Yep. And if they don't, then they lose them and they could do really badly for themselves. So what is it with the propaganda deal that they they need to expound their people and be heard um, and also very much control of media? Yes. Well, propaganda's main purpose is that a successful communist state requires a certain degree of buy-in from its citizens and from the individuals, because otherwise you would revolt. So uh, you would you have to deny your senses to a certain extent where you're told that this is a great utopia where uh, birds just fly onto your plate to eat and you don't have to w- really worry about any of your temporal needs. And then you look outside and see the poverty and the absolute violence and just terrible conditions. And so they had to create really a pseudo religion. Um, Father Vincent Michelli has written on this in his book, The Gods of Atheism, where he basically argues that atheism is not the lack of worship, but the worship of idols, and that that human impulse to worship something is always there. And communism took that place. They would um, have the picture of the dictator up where either a crucifix or a picture of a saint would be in our homes. They had these ritualized experiences, including a new liturgical calendar with feasts such as uh, Victory Day, where uh, the Soviet Union celebrates the winning of World War II, and uh, an entire body of literature, too. So Socialist Realism, one book that I remember was called uh, When the Steel is Tempered, or How the Steel is Tempered, which (laughs) actually ironically sounds kind of like my book title, but it's glorifying this working world and um just just it's a completely materialistic book obviously where you're again engineering souls and creating a new soviet man because in order to be sustainable for many generations that is necessary um a great part of this was the incentivization of collaboration so party members joining the party was almost a prerequisite for any sort of life Uh, Olga, for example, refused to join the party her whole life and was persecuted at various teaching jobs. She also would wear a cross to work and was told you have to take that off. And so they they break you down in these small ways and encourage, of course, as we've mentioned, the the spying on neighbors and the the buy-in to this system. There's a really interesting book um, called Keeping Faith with the Party that talks about returnees from the gulag who actually had internalized the communist ideology and message so much that they believed that they had sinned against the party and were seeking reparation even though the party had just thrown them into the the gulag for 
many years. And so it's this Stockholm syndrome almost. It's a it's a very interesting psychological phenomenon, but it shows what happens when anything else takes the place of God. And when we don't have objective eternal principles, these other false ideologies can take the place of religion. Uh, another thing that was an interesting sort of subtle propaganda tactic that I noticed, especially in the Czechoslovak context, was the weaponization of the sin of scandal. So they would spread these rumors about the church and would often say about specific priests, oh, father so-and-so has left the priesthood or he's committing XYZ sin to disillusion the faithful about their own priests and that has as we've seen with this even the scandals in the u.s that has a tremendous effect on people's actual supernatural faith so one example of this was there was a eucharistic miracle in a slovak town of chihost in the late 40s and it was uh the crucifix behind the altar swung to the right and to the left in a way that it wouldn't have naturally, and then came to rest in the middle right as the host was being consecrated. And this sort of spurred um, a local cultist, a movement of people who would make small pilgrimages to this site. And the priest was a young priest by the name of Father Joseph Tufar. The communist authorities got wind of what had happened and of course found this unacceptable. So they tried, they hauled him before state security and they actually tried to make him apostatize and tried to get him to participate in a propaganda video that was going to disprove the miracle and show how it had all been fake. And he was really standing there with a rope to the side and making this happen. And of course he said no even if this had not been a genuine miracle, because of course it didn't have the chance to be investigated by the bishops, so we'll never really know for sure, but he wouldn't lie. He wouldn't admit to doing something he hadn't done and thereby scandalize the faithful and probably make some of them lose their faith. So he was beaten, tortured, and eventually killed after a show trial for his refusal to participate in this propaganda. The film still exists. Uh, it's about 12 minutes. It's available on YouTube. And it again, it shows in a more obvious way than any of us could ever what the communist project was really about, that this Eucharistic miracle is such a threat. If God doesn't exist, why is this a threat? If sacramentality is not real, why do you care so much about this? Amazing. Um, last question for you, Kristen. It, totally fascinating. But there's a tie-in with communism and abortion. Can you explain that to us? Yes. Well, it's it's really quite sad to see that in many former communist countries, abortion is still so prevalent. And the, it's interesting because sometimes, depending on what the population goals in the next five-year five plan was at the time, abortion would either be illegal sometimes as it was even under Nazi Germany or discouraged because not because of the known dignity of the human person, but instead because they needed to grow the population for temporal worldly means. But nevertheless, it still remains a plague in especially in Eastern Europe. Um, one woman that I interviewed did discuss this in the context of her own family, how not only was life just in the dignity of life completely, um, you know, rejected by the communists and made out to be something that, as Stalin said, the death of one is a tragedy, the death of millions is a statistic. It was really just this cavalier attitude towards life, but also 
the poverty is something that, as we know, obviously is a breeding ground for abortion, this feeling that you are not able to provide for a child and that they have no future, the future is bleak, is often cited as, as a, an excuse or a reason for abortions. And so she discusses within her own family this choice that the women felt that they were compelled to make because of the external conditions of communism. So not only the brainwashing and the propaganda, but also on this more human level, the the weakness and the, the decisions that were made under duress and how much stronger you had to be to stick to the truth and to defend life in that situation. And so not only does communism overtly uh, just treat life as disposable, but also it creates the conditions where even those who had been faithful to a certain point were finding themselves doing things they thought they would have never done before. So it's this both overt and covert uh, attack on life. So one more thing for you then, you know, in the church today, it certainly seems like there are what, what many would have called communism at play. I know that there were books written about, you know, communist infiltration into the church. But what's going on now, even from Rome, starts to make that all seem very believable if you didn't believe it before. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear you take on it. It's a great observation. And there, as we sort of alluded to before, that is one of the pinnacles and one of the main tactics that communists take against the church is this infiltration and not only for decision-making and putting men in power who they believe will be friendly to the regime, but also to subvert Catholic doctrine so that it takes over like a frog in the boiling pot before you even know it, you have given up most of Catholic doctrine and replaced it with communist doctrine. This has taken many forms in various regimes. So in Czechoslovakia, as I mentioned before, this was known as the national church. So it was about 11% of priests collaborated fully. They pledged their allegiance to the Czechoslovak National Church and to the state rather than to the Vatican. And they were known to collaborate, to turn people in. Unfortunately, they would even break the seal of confession if you went to them to confession in order to inform on penitence. This was sort of, it was more of an obvious distinction between the national church, uh, it was it even had a name, it was called Pacem in Terrace in the 70s. And the church that remained loyal to the Vatican was underground. And we've talked about the problems with that, but it was a pretty clear distinction. In other countries, it was less clear. And that I think is more what we are experiencing because in Latin America, for example, this took the form of liberation theology, where you get to the point where Castro himself is claiming that he can be a good Catholic and he he wants to be both a Christian and a communist. And it's much more doctrinal warfare through means of propaganda without that clear distinction between national church as a body, as a separate entity and secret church. They didn't really have that in Latin America. As far as I understand, it was just this milieu where many of the clergy were starting to spout heresy and things that didn't make sense and were contrary to Catholic doctrine, but they remained part of the same same body and same entity. So in my opinion, that one is harder to deal with. It's harder to navigate because on the other hand, you know, if someone is a collaborator, of course, they can always repent, but you knew which priests to avoid in Czechoslovakia. But in Cuba, it was it was much more difficult to determine that distinction. So 
that is what I think we are seeing today in, in Rome and in the West is that these men all belong obviously to the same organization and there is no clear distinction, but they will, they will say things that are clearly anti-Catholic and yet at the same time, maybe a day later, they will uphold the faith. And so we're in this position where the laity have a lot more pressure on them to have to discern and to filter things that are coming from the clergy in this way. And, and that's really unfortunate, but it's a subtle victory for the communists that as, as Belladon has noted, these this was their goal to be able to not distinguish between truth and lies. But if you if you pray for discernment and the Holy Spirit will guide you, this is something that we can we can distinguish between. We our consciences are not broken. So of course, with the proper respect for authority that always must be there, we do have that built in um, Aboriginal law, as Saint I think John Henry Newman said. So. Kristen Van Uden, truly, truly remarkable. Uh, look forward to your book uh, out in November by Sophia Press, When the Sickle Swings. Thank you so very much and God bless you. Thank you so much. God bless. And God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.